Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Maria Connolly. Hello. Back after a long break. <laughs> yeah, where I was busy having a baby and getting used to the baby and making sure my two-year-old didn't kill my baby. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll hear some little snuffling noises. because we're it's not at... me, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> we are in fact joined by a third person today, and that is... Miss Alethea herself in the flesh. Almost three months old now. So Yeah. Yeah. We felt last time you were on we had a, a toddler snoozing downstairs. <laughs> this the story of my life. <laughs> this time we have a little baby nursing on your lap. Yeah. So <laughs> We, we we make it work, it's fine. <laughs> Somehow or other. Uh, but we just had to see what we could do to make this podcast happen because it's a very special, exciting date coming up. Yeah, something we've been waiting for for a long time here in the Anglo-Irish world. Can I yeah. even say that? Is that like some kind of treachery or something? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so you talk, you Irish person. Go for it. <laughs> well, yeah, to, to have someone who is deeply connected with England and also Ireland throughout his life, we're of course talking about the upcoming canonization of John Henry Newman. Yeah, yeah. And he's... It's it's just such an exciting moment in church history. I think it's something that we've been waiting for a long time to happen. I think there's a lot of excitement. I'm totally jealous of our friends who are going to the canonization. It's something that I was trying to make happen, um, personally, because Newman has played a huge role in my life. And felt like I kind of owed it to him but I think he would understand with with the three-month-old and the two-year-old and <laughs> I have to say I'm a lot newer to the whole reading Newman and, and whatnot when I texted Maria to say what should we talk about with Newman I had like one thing in mind and she sends me this message with about seven different things <laughs> I was gonna be like okay it's slightly unrealistic to, to, <laughs> unrealistic to talk about his entire life in one episode of this podcast um, <laughs> because he was pretty amazing but yeah I fell in love with him when I was about I think I was about 22 and I never read him before and I had never heard of him and I was in the religious order at the time and I was having a lot of difficulty kind of trying to discern if I was meant to stay with them or if I was meant to come home and a part of my problem had to do with conscience and the role of a spiritual director and your relationship with God as mediated through that spiritual director because my director was telling me I needed to stay in the order. It was a member of that order, actually my superior at the time. She was telling me that any kind of vocational doubts I had were temptations mm -hmm. and that I had to just overcome them and stick it out. And I, I had a very strong experience where I had felt God telling me in prayer that it wasn't my vocation and that I was meant to go home and do something else with my life. And she told me that that as well was a temptation. So I believed her, you know, being the good Catholic that I was, that I am, I hope, <laughs> trying to kind of, you know, like say authority is the most important thing. We need to listen to authority. We need to listen to our directors and thinking that was a clear sign of God's will. But I continued to be unhappy for the following months and really, really uncertain because in my mind, if, if it hadn't been God telling me to go home, basically, to leave that path, then I didn't know what God's talking to me in my conscience and my soul was because that's how he always talked to me so if that wasn't God then what was it so I, I had this dilemma and I was really praying about it trying to figure it out I remember my mom came to I was working in a school in, in Atlanta at the time and my mom came to visit me 
for weekends and she just ended up buying this book of Newman's prayers, verses and devotions. And she said, this is an English man. I don't think he was even beatified at the time. I think he was only a venerable. And she said, um, I thought you might like this. So she gave it to me and I started to read it. And I first fell in love with this poetry because I'm a big English literature fan. And <laughs> although it's not the highest literature, like a lot of literary critics would kind of dismiss Newman as a poet. I found it beautiful and absolutely idealistic and in the best possible sense, just like really like striking that chord in my heart of the beautiful language that meets the beautiful ideals of our faith. And then I started to read the devotions and prayers and then, and, and I found those beautiful as well. Just a high old English style of writing, a Victorian style that really resonated with me because like I grew up reading Walter Scott before I read anything else kind of thing. You know, it's not it's not all Walter Scottian. That was kind of my introduction to Newman. And then I decided I really liked this man. I wanted to learn more about him. And I heard that he had written a book called The Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which was his autobiography. Yeah. So I read that. And that was for me the kind of clarifying moment when I realized that my conscience is very important. And I read it through reading Newman and kind of following his path from Anglicanism into Catholicism, mm -hmm. which is kind of his main life story. Like he worked for a long time to make high Anglicanism more Catholic until he realized that he just needed to join Catholicism, basically, yeah. that that was where truth was. Um, he has that quote, what is it, to, to know history is to cease to be Protestant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was a long process for him. But he came to the conclusion in the end that although all of his friends and closest colleagues, the people that he had built this dream of reforming the Anglican church with, although all of them or most of them were still firmly rooted in Anglicanism, he knew that personally his conscience was telling him that he had to go where truth was. Yeah. And for him, and like in reality, he saw that truth was in Catholicism. So reading that and reading particularly his leaving of his community in Littlemore, when he was received into the church and he, it was described in the apologia like almost like a death people were coming into his room to say goodbye to him the night before he was received <laughs> into catholicism as if he were dying or going to a place that was unreachable yeah and for a lot of those men their life goal and everything that they had was tied into this project and so for them it was a very personal betrayal so for newman he had to make the choice between very very close friendships yeah. and his conscience and between the authority in one place telling him that he was wrong and his conscience mm -hmm. and that kind of is a theme that goes throughout his whole life because we'll talk about it briefly but he had a lot to do or say at the time when the doctrine of papal infallibility was brought into the church in vatican council one and for like anyway sorry this is getting convoluted <laughs> but basically i just find it really fascinating and really helpful in my own personal life I'm sure all of you have those special saints that kind of mean something to you in your own personal lives um, that struck you in one way or helped you on your path in another. And for me, Newman has always been that. He was my clarifier in the sense that he clarified for me that conscience does have a huge role. And even as Catholics, that it's not just, you know, this idea of blind obedience to the authorities that may be, but we also have the duty to know and follow that voice inside of our hearts that tells us how God wants us to act in our own lives. And you can see that throughout many different saints' lives, that they've had to do things that um, superiors or, or directors disapproved of in different ways, obviously not yeah. flouting church authority. And in some ways, how much 
as much as we as Catholics respect authority, how much it can also impede the working um, of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I think particularly because in Ireland we have our special connection with him because he was sent across to Dublin to help found what should have been a Catholic university. God knows we need one. <laughs> yeah. And it was not a particularly fruitful time in his life. I know, I think he really struggled with it. We in Dublin are still reaping the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, both Maria and I attend the university church. church. He built it himself. Yeah, yeah, that he built himself and that has has a community around what he set up there. And so we have our Newman influence. Um, we just don't have the university that was meant to go with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. because in many ways he was impeded by the hierarchy. Bishop, yeah. yeah, the hierarchies above him, which is a shame. It's something because I'm, I'm starting to read his uh, another one of his, along with the Apologia, he wrote, I mean, he wrote so many things. It just, it's so incredibly prolific. But he wrote, uh, he wrote the idea of a university, which is just a really fascinating look at what education means in a Catholic context and what it can achieve and, and the place it has within our faith. And I hope at some point to do a whole podcast just on that. Yeah, um, and it would be fascinating to talk about kind of the history of Catholic education in Ireland with that, yeah. um, because there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, definitely. And a lot to kind of examine in, in light of the future and how, what the future of Catholic education looks like in Ireland, um, yeah. which looks a bit grim at the moment, but yeah, we don't give up hope. <laughs> so. Well, thank God we have a saint coming into it. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm sure he cares more than any of us about it. So up from his eternal bliss up there yeah (laughs) his other his other major work was the development of christian doctrine Um, and that's kind of going along um actually it was funny because when he was first converted to catholicism one of the other uh, cardinals in the vatican said something like newman is the most dangerous man in england because people in the hierarchy again were concerned about him and concerned about his ideas and he nevertheless persisted in kind of developing them and, and talking about the idea that doctrine is something that develops. Yeah. Just the same as, as our conscience is, is something that's incredibly important in our own personal lives. He talks about almost in a sense the conscience of the church. He makes it very clear he's not talking about eternal truths that are changing or obviously we know truth is unchangeable and eternal. But we as human beings do not have the fullness of that truth, except for in as far as we have Christ, who is the truth, right? But we don't have every solution and every answer. And just as times change, culture changes, society changes, so doctrine has to develop. Because if if it didn't, we would be stuck in this kind of weird, fake limbo. (laughs) Can I really quickly read a quote? I'm obliged to bring religion into after-dinner toasts, which indeed does not seem quite the thing. I shall drink to the Pope, if you please, still to conscience first and to the Pope afterwards. And I thought that was really good. And it, it was put in the biography I was reading about him that he was under a cloud mm-hmm. where Rome was concerned for a good chunk of his life because yeah. people were wary of his ideas on conscience and authority. Yeah. I just love that. You know, like, I'll drink to to the Pope. Yes, I will. I am. He also wrote a very interesting letter to William Gladstone, who's the prime minister at the time basically after the doctrine of papal infallibility came out said that catholics english catholics would either have to sign a retraction of the infallibility of the pope or they could not be good citizens he wrote a great retraction of that and kind of saying i can be a good catholic and a good citizen that's a whole other yeah that's a whole other excited about that 
Um, so he wrote all of these, and uh, obviously, if you're looking for a more comprehensive view of his life, and, and go read a biography, because <laughs> read a biography. The Word on Fire did a great Pivotal Players episode on him, and I would also like to shout out. I've been uh, following up on the. There's just a website called Newman Canonization, and they've been doing incredible work. I'm really very impressed. They have a series of podcasts that come out, which are just like little snippets on a particular aspect of his life, and they've put a lot of work into it. So it's really great to see that kind of groundswell behind this can and how much people care about it so yeah there's a lot of really great ways to get to know Newman and his life but for this episode we're going to just focus on one thing in particular and as we kind of mentioned his life was characterized by this cataclysmic shift from Anglicanism to Catholicism and the thing that both made that possible but also was distinctive about how he lived out his life is the way that Newman built friendships around this and had the courage to in some ways challenge those friendships by his conversion but also the persistence to maintain them past his conversion and so much of his life is really characterized by his I think Scott Hahn calls it an apostolate of friendship that of all the things that Newman really believed in 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 the way of speaking truth was through friendship and I think it's interesting I think he has his writings which we said were obviously prolific were I think there's about 31 volumes of his writing and there's 32 enormous volumes of his letters mm, he uh, was an incredible correspondent just i think like the amount of people that he kept up a regular correspondence with is just it puts us to shame on this day of social media yeah. you know like <laughs> do i bother to write happy birthday to that person on their timeline yeah. like, <laughs> that's a lot of effort you know <laughs> so. yeah we have twenty one thousand of his letters oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> need to buy me some nice new stationery. Yeah. <laughs> and so we just wanted to take an opportunity to look at this and look at what Newman teaches us about friendship in our culture. I think it's a very almost contentious topic now. I think we have so much focus on people, first of all, in an individualistic way, living their lives and having their goals and living out their own particular fantasies and dreams. It's very atomized, isn't it? Yeah, it's very disparate. And even within that, the kind of shift in perspective to being very obsessed with the way that you express your sexuality, I think it also, even within Newman's time, throws particular light on the way that people live out their friendships right and uh, and it's it's very common to kind of blur the lines between friendship and sexuality now or doubt obviously we are all influenced by our sexuality but like the idea that that, that there that might be a friendship friend like related becomes sexual at some yeah. stage or once you become very close to someone there automatically has to be a shift and, um and so i think there can be a lack of confidence in what it means to have truly deep friendship and for fear of straying into that area, that grey area that the world is kind of like jumping yeah. the gun to. And also the other thing that I think impacts it is how divisive our politics have come. I'm talking about this generally. I There are plenty of examples of people's personal lives where this is not true. I know it's not true in my own life, but that you can feel like you, you have so little in common with someone who sits in a different political box to you. Because we define ourselves more and more by kind of what club we belong to it mm-hmm. either be it political or religious or there's just so many you know what shows you watch or, or yeah. you know if you're a fan of this or of that or it's almost like we have this this incessant need to define ourselves as people and to do yeah. that we have to join different things in our heads or make mm-hmm. us like fit into these stereotypes that are presented to us and I don't think that's um, helpful when it comes to breaking down boundaries and creating deep cross camp 
friendships. Yeah, and that you should be, and you know, I think Newman would be a huge proponent of this. You should have friends from lots of different backgrounds and lots of different perspectives to you and different social classes or different stages in their lives. Like um, that having just a particular bubble of people who are in exactly the same position as you is not the only essence of true friendship. Yeah, and it's interesting because I know this is more family than friendship, but in Newman's own family, I think there are three boys, and I think he had three sisters as well, but the three boys ended up, one an agnostic, one a Unitarian, which is the faith they were raised in, and one Catholic. So it's just, and and his his own family isolated themselves from him. Like his brothers were angry at him when he became a Catholic. His sisters were angry at him. One of his sisters stayed close to him, even though she said that it was one of the greatest sorrows of her life that he had converted Mm -hmm. and she could never understand why. Yeah. But it's just, it's fascinating because, I mean, even in that time, you know, 1800s, like there was that atomization and, and, and there always has been that. Yeah, I don't think there's ever a golden time. No, it's not like, oh, we're in the worst of all periods because I think we could tend to be a little bit doom and gloom about our own time. Um, Yeah, I think there is a huge amount of hope as well. I think there are plenty of examples of people investing in friendship in modern mm. culture but in some ways I what more that what I'm saying is not that it doesn't exist but that you kind of have to work harder to achieve yeah. it but he wrote a lot about friendship and he wrote very explicitly about friendship in ways that are very life-giving and wonderful he has and very very um practical as well I, I was very yeah. surprised by that because a lot of the time when you read spiritual writers you tend to get the theory behind stuff or the ideas behind it but it doesn't really help you that much unless you're able to apply it but you go yeah well I was going to say he has two particular sermons which I'm going to take most of my quotes from there's one which is sermon on love of relations and friends and also his sermon on personal influence and the means of propagating the truth which uh, he has many many sermons and these are just two of them and I'll be pulling from lots of different places but most of the quotes that I'll be taking are from these two because I think the first thing that he really addresses is whether it is actually right and fitting for Christians to have a close circle of friends right because there are people that would say that you know as Christians we need to have the idea of like particular friendships or friendships that are specific is not Christian in the sense that we have to love all mankind. Yeah, um, and that it's in some way exclusionary. Or in some way keeping our hearts from the love of God. I think yeah. like the imitation of Christ, I would say like, I mean, the imitation of Christ is great by Thomas Akempis, don't get me wrong, but I remember there's one part in it that talks about not putting anyone into your heart in a specific particular way because mm-hmm. because it takes away from the love that we can give God. So, yeah. like, I mean, that that is obviously true on one level because we don't want to make anyone into many gods, but it's very interesting Newman's take on this. So you go for yeah. Rachel. <laughs> well, he talks about how Christ himself had intimate friends. Like, first of all, even if you just think of it in terms of the apostles, that it was a specific group of people that he called. And even then, within that group, you see hierarchies mm-hmm. and levels of intimacy. So he talks about how, in particular, you think of St. John the Evangelist and how St. John was always referred to as his his beloved friend. And he's the one that stays at the throughout the crucifixion and has this unique... He's, I mean, he's given the care of Our Lady. And if that yeah. doesn't tell you something about Christ's relationship with him, I don't know what does. Because, like, you're not going to give anybody your mom. You know, especially when your mom's married. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so Newman says, It might be supposed that the Son of God, Most High, could not have loved one man more than another. Yet we find our Saviour had a private friend. And this shows us, first how entirely he was a man, as much as any of us, in his wants and feelings. And next, 
that there is nothing contrary to the spirit of the gospel, nothing inconsistent with the fullness of Christian love, in having our affections directed in an especial way towards certain objects, towards those whose circumstances of our past life or some peculiarities of characters have endeared to us. Which I think is such a beautiful sentiment that it isn't against the call to love all of humanity, to have friends, and that they play a role in our spiritual life. I always think of, there's actually, on a similar line, there's a very fun quote by Chesterton. And Chesterton has some, some great writings on friendship, but he has this one, it's, it's in an essay called Tolstoy and the Cult of Simplicity, where he says, Christ commanded us to have love for all men. But even if we had equal love for all men, to speak of having the same love for all men is merely bewildering nonsense. If we love a man at all, the impression he produces on us must be vitally different to the impression produced by another man whom we love. To speak of having the same regard for both is about as sensible as asking a man whether he prefers chrysanthemums or billiards. Christ did not love humanity. He never said he loved humanity. He loved men. Neither he nor anyone else can love humanity. It is like loving a gigantic centipede. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, I think what's key in that is that when we keep it at the level of humanity, it becomes so abstract and vague yeah. that it has no practical place. That idea of philanthropy instead yeah. of Christianity. And I think that's what these two great men were, especially Newman was kind of hinting at or saying straight out. Uh, that he, here's a great quote as well from his love of relation of friends. And so he says, the real love of man must depend on practice and therefore must begin by exercising itself on our friends around us. Otherwise it will have no existence. By trying to love our relations and friends, by submitting to their wishes, though contrary to our own, by bearing with their infirmities, by overcoming their occasional waywardness by kindness, by dwelling on their excellences and trying to copy them, thus it is that we form in our hearts that root of charity, which though small at first, may like the mustard seed at last even overshadow the earth. I just thought that's so beautiful. It makes me actually think of a quote of Gandalf, because like, we can't not bring Gandalf into this. But <laughs> from Tolkien's book, obviously, for most readers out there. He says something about, it's not in our power to fight all the evils in the world, but to only fight those in our corner of the earth. Yeah. What I took from that is it's we have our own garden, our own piece of the earth that is ours to love and to make into a better place. Like mm -hmm. With all the culture wars and things that are going on in our world, it can get very discouraging and very depressing yeah. very quickly. I think that's one of the most frustrating things about what we're seeing with the way that we're completely showing disrespect to our planet and the way that we're treating it and the kind of pollution and the waste and all of those things. I think the biggest problem is that people feel so overwhelmed by There's how big and yeah. how how much the problem is kind of out of the scope of one person. And obviously there are movements where people are banding together and on all of those things, but I always still feel like it's such a, a huge thing to take on and that maybe there is an answer in the same way that loving and maybe, you know, respecting our world comes from the ways that we do it in our small worlds that yeah. we actually inhabit and and that from there it radiates outwards yeah. and that I think that's especially what he's saying it's not just that oh you have to learn to have friends so that you can love the people around you but that once you do that you develop the capacity to love more yeah and like he said that kind of practice of loving and of saying that you know someone I love deeply also has flaws and so I'll forgive them and so I'll work with them to better themselves 
and that then the next time you meet an acquaintance or a stranger or someone you don't know anything about you might be able to have that reflex of love yeah and that's that's i mean that's how we work as human beings like we can't theorize about everything and and live on a kind of abstract level like we live in our realities and our worlds with the, the people that we all of mankind is not available to us on a regular basis unless you're talking about the internet. It's actually, it makes me think of something that my husband did, which I originally thought was a little bit weird or I was a little bit skeptical of because I thought it's not being open to to kind of mankind in the sense of like loving all people or whatever. But what he did is he, he's a great one for making lists. He loves making lists. He makes lists about everything. And <laughs> he's got like 30 notebooks of lists at home. But one of his lists, he has a list of 20 people. And basically it's 20 people that he, he sat down and tried to think of 20 people in his life that he could love better and that he could make more of an effort at. Because he said that he was feeling overwhelmed thinking about loving everyone or trying to be virtuous or be there for so many different people mm-hmm. in so many different circumstances that he was actually forgetting to put in the effort and time with people that did need him. Yeah. So he sat down and made a list of the people that basically he was going to put in the effort with. And that sounds, it sounds really kind of callous on one level, but on another, it's not at all because it was people in our lives already, people that we know, either friends or family members that he feels like he's not truly loving in the sense that he's not truly giving himself to them. And he wants to make sure that he doesn't let any of them kind of slip through the cracks of his it's very like, isn't it, the Mother Teresa quote of, if you can't help everyone, help one person. Right, right. And, and start, it, it, start yeah, with that one person. Start with these people that are in your life already that may feel this kind of like vague unease to, to love. But if we're, not, if we're not looking at the people that God has given us through whatever circumstance, through the fact that they're your family members, um, or the fact that they're the friends that have been kind of thrown into your path that idea of kind of intentional friendship or intentional loving like let's face it our society doesn't help us to foster those relationships and we have to be intentional about it so yeah. i thought that was a good yeah kind of practical following on from your previous new quote he then goes on to say we see then how absurd it is when writers talking magnificently about loving the whole human race with a comprehensive affection such vaunting professions what do they come from feelings and nothing more This is not to love men, it is but to talk about love. The real love of man must depend on practice and therefore must begin by exercising itself on our friends around us, otherwise it will have no existence. It makes me think of St. Therese of Lisieux, who's like Mm. the the master of this, right? The little way of love. Um, Because in her autobiography, The Story of the Soul, um, one part that's always stayed with me is when she talks about that nun that nun that bugs her. Yeah. I don't really, I read it ages ago, so I don't remember the well. She like splashed her, she used to like do all these things that would annoy Therese because Therese is really sensitive and like, <laughs> you know, she's a bit of a melancholic. Like she, she gets annoyed pretty easily, but she was like, there were little ticks about this nun in particular. And to be fair, she sounds pretty unpleasant, but Therese made it her duty to seek this nun out and love her in a very particular, very heroic way um, mm-hmm. in tiny little things and tiny little ways but I think that's a perfect example of taking someone that is in your life I know this is maybe straying a little bit from the idea of those particular friendships because it's not like Therese felt an incredible friendship towards this nun mm-hmm. but I think at the end of her life after Therese died this nun said something about how she didn't think Therese was that great because she was worried that Therese had a weird kind of attachment to her and that is amazing because this was exactly the same nun who Therese struggled the most with yeah so it's to kind of say like 
Yeah. You, you know, like, it's okay to try to overwhelm someone with love and friendship because obviously there's more virtue and merit in it if it's someone <laughs> that gets on your nerves. And I think there can be such a tendency to compartmentalize our, our lives and say that, like, our our faith is private and nothing to do with the community of people around us. Yeah. And while it's important to be able to have friendships that kind of go across creeds and across kind of groups or political views or things like that, it's also, Newman talks about the fact that there is a depth to a friendship that shares the most important things. And by most important things, we mean obviously religion and and our understanding of how to love and who God is in our lives. It's a really beautiful quote. And Newman himself had a lot of different types of friendship, but I think maybe some of the closest friendships that he did have were friendships with others who shared his desire to love God and the desire to help the church on earth and in any way that they understood that. And he had friends that came with him during his conversion that converted with him. He brought a lot of different people into the Catholic Church from Anglicanism. And then he has friends that stayed inside of Anglicanism mm-hmm. and maintained that friendship with him, even though there were obviously, like I said, a lot of people that cut the ties with him when he when he made the move to Rome. But he says, But what is it that can bind two friends together in intimate converse for a course of years, but the participation in something that is unchangeable and essentially good? And what is this but religion? Religious tastes alone are unalterable. The saints of God continue in one way while the fashions of the world change. And a faithful, indestructible friendship may thus be a test of the parties, so loving each other, having the love of God seated deep in their hearts. Not an infallible test, certainly, for they may have dispositions remarkably the same, or some engrossing object of this world, literary or other. They may be removed from the temptation to change, or they may have a natural sobriety of temper, which remains contented wherever it finds itself. However, under certain circumstances, it is a lively token of the presence of divine grace in them, and it is always a sort of symbol of it, for there is at first sight something of the nature of virtue in the very notion of constancy, dislike of change being not only the characteristic of a virtuous mind, but in some sense a virtue itself. So he's basically saying that religion and the love of God is at the center of the deepest type of friendship, the most unchangeable type of friendship. Because you can, like, obviously, just because you share religion or faith with someone doesn't mean that you're going to be their closest friend. Like, there are loads of people that I know in our faith that share all of my same beliefs and values that I don't feel that close to because I don't know them, A, or because I just don't click with them. Um, and, And then a good number of friends that don't share my values that I do feel very close to. But there is a truth in the sense that you do connect it in a very special way, in a, in a certain deeper way, in, mm-hmm. a, in an unalterable way, as he puts it, to people that share the greatest ideals of our lives. Yeah. And there is potential for a kind of earth-shattering friendship there, and a beautiful friendship, a friendship that will go beyond death because it goes into the eternal realities. Yeah. And I think that's incredible and great. And, and that even by bringing... I think the other thing that he talks on a lot is to have that core friendship of the people in your faith, but also what we were talking about, which is looking outwards to the world. He has this, like I said, one of his other sermons is that personal relations and the ways of propagating the truth that, you know, there's that quote, it gets attributed to Francis of Assisi, but it isn't at all times preach the gospel and when necessary use words. Yeah. But even that I feel like in this day and age can be very much a way of excusing 
not talking about God. Yeah, not talking about God to the world. Yeah. But what Newman talks about is how being yourself and being fully Catholic and fully Christian and just being that person and then being around people is a way of drawing them into communion with God, which I feel has resonated quite strongly in my own life. And that has been something that has benefited my life through the friends that I've had and then also had an impact on the people around me. I think it's it's such a beautiful way of looking at it. And like you said, it's much more practical. It's not about loving humanity or something like that. Like it is very tangible. But he says, I answer that it, Christianity, has been upheld in the world, not as a system, not by books, not by argument, nor by temporal power, but by the personal influence of such men who are at once the teachers and the patterns of it. We shall find it difficult to estimate the moral power which a single individual, trained to practice what he teaches, may acquire in his own circle in the course of years. The attraction, exerted by unconscious holiness, is of an urgent and irresistible nature. It persuades the weak, the timid, the wavering, and the inquiring. It draws forth the affection and loyalty of all who are in a measure like-minded. So there's that sense that even when we're looking to cultivate those friendships in faith and friendships in religion, the best way to do that is by living a life of people will see that and respond to it in a particular way. Yeah, and it's it may take a lot longer than, you know, yeah. a truth shines for itself. Like, it's it's a light that's out there and that draws people in. Um, and from Newman's perspective, for someone who wrote so much and wrote arguments and, mm-hmm. and wrote moral treaties and, and had that intellectual and open and public yeah. declaration of faith that what he's saying is that that all kind of has its place but it is almost not nearly as important as being a friend to people right and and, and especially I've always thought as well like because I started reading Newman when I was still in a religious order and obviously living celibacy inside of that I think it's a very important thing that is underexplored the idea of the celibate vocation and I think Mm -hmm. it's something really beautiful how as human beings we need community and we need friendship we need relationships and not only for people that are kind of like sworn to celibacy in in a a religious vocation but for people that are maybe single or living or even inside of marriage you know like where you have you still are living chastity inside of marriage in in its own way and form but it's, it's to kind of say we need those relationships around us those deep incredible human connections that can fill us up and hold us up and especially for somebody in a vocation that doesn't have you know the other person in the same way as marriage you definitely need spiritual friendships and human friendships to to make you a full human being Um, yeah and that it can have such a profound impact I think the Newman canonization website had an interview with Scott Hahn and he was saying he was listing off the ways and I think we're just going to touch a bit briefly on so we've talked a lot about how Newman spoke about this but maybe we're just going to go into a little bit more detail on how he actively lived it in his life because uh, he as he said he certainly practiced what he preached but in the video Scott Hahn references a uh, father Rutler who he said had identified Newman as the instrument of conversion for 636 noblemen 700 plus clergymen, 1,100 of their children and wives, 700 professionals, 800 artists and writers, 612 young men who became Catholic priests, and 164 young ladies who became nuns. 
my dear lord <laughs> it makes you feel a bit ashamed about what you've done with your life <laughs> yeah I know and I because I obviously love the Catholic literary revival of the Victorian going to the early to mid 20th century and it's so crazy how many of those you can directly link back to, to Newman. Newman like even ones that come further down because you've got people like Evelyn Wall who was influenced by Ronald Knox who was in- influenced by Newman yeah. <laughs> another another interesting kind of historical connection I was reading about was that apparently William Wilberforce's two sons were among yeah. his one of them the older one was his close friend and the younger one was one of his pupils yeah. I just thought that was so cool because as we know um, Wilberforce did so much to end slavery in England and it's just an interesting kind of historical and we're actually just interestingly I think we're we're recording this the day after the feast of St. John Chrysostom and there's a quote here where it says Newman admired St. John Chrysostom who once wrote a friend is more to be longed for than the light I speak of a genuine one and wonder not for it were better for us that sun should be extinguished than that we should be deprived of friends better to live in darkness than to be without friends yeah and so yeah you see it from the second so he arrives at at oxford as a student and he meets william bowden who was in the year above him but he meets him on his first day and they have the same birthday and then they're this incredibly close friends that continues on william bowden died prematurely but newman continued to write throughout his life to william's wife and daughter and played a huge part in their lives that like it goes on even past the the death of his own the, friend. the death of the friends I, I find that fascinating about him that he carried on correspondences with a lot of his um friends families and mm-hmm. children as well like he yeah, um, he's very close to some of the children of some of his friends. There are letters he's written to them and inscriptions that he wrote to them for their birthdays or in their, uh, like the Victorian custom of having albums. Yeah. Like for as far, as far as I can tell, that's like people used to have these books that other people would write witty epithets or kind of, you know, <laughs> little poems for. I was like, I wish we still did that. That sounds amazing. You know, like imagine getting poems off all your friends for your birthday as like a birthday present. It's just mm-hmm. so... It's before the kind of very materialistic, commercialistic yeah. way of looking at the world where it mattered more yeah. than the words your friend had to say to you. Yeah. I really like that. But anyway, yeah. he wrote some hilarious ones for people's albums. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. He didn't. He didn't limit himself to writing about high spiritual. No. He he cared about his friend's daughter's birthday party. You know, like this great man spent his time. With little people, in the sense of with movers and shakers, but also with the average and the ordinary. Um, yeah, and the amount of exceedingly close friendships that he had, according to his biographies, yeah. is staggering. Like, I don't know how much energy he had to pursue these friendships. But yeah, I was just going to list out a couple of yeah, them. So there's there's William Bowden, who I just mentioned, Richard Hurl Frude, who was one of those ones that he had really deep discussions with and was this friend who they really tossed things out and, and debated things. And so Frude was an Anglo-Catholic and was the one who brought... Newman to thinking more highly of the church as an institution and and the various elements of Catholicism, but from the Anglo-Catholic point of view. I have a quote. Newman says, Hurlfrude was a pupil of Keeble's formed by him and in turn reacting upon him. I knew him first in 1826 and was in the closest and most affectionate friendship with him. It is difficult to enumerate the precise additions to my theological creed, which I derived from a friend whom I owe so much. He taught me to look with admiration towards the Church of Rome and in the same degree to dislike the Reformation. He fixed me with the idea of devotion to the Blessed Virgin and he led me gradually to believe in the real presence. And Newman was the one who accompanied him 
to the Mediterranean for his tuberculosis. And that's that trip to Italy and the Mediterranean was very instrumental in, in Newman's experience of the Catholic Church and, and his and his path. But, you know, he went on that trip to accompany a friend who then actually died shortly afterwards. But that loyalty and that willingness to put yourself in those situations for a friend, I thought was really beautiful. As a tutor, and as we said, he was really invested in education and had a very different view of education. He actually got in, in trouble with his university for this, but he was very invested in the welfare of his students and for their spiritual and moral welfare beyond their intellectual and their educational um, prowess. And so uh, as a tutor, he formed friendships with his student, Tom Mosley, who with his brother, John, married Newman's sisters, Harriet and Jemima, respectively. So like, that's really, talk about really inviting your students into your, your life. life right? <laughs> Maria, you mentioned a little bit earlier that he formed a community, a lay Anglican community after his time in Oxford. In a refurbished horse stable, I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> in Littlemore. In Littlemore. And he, that was, I, it seems like that was a very pivotal and almost if it weren't for this conflict of his conversion, would be a very idyllic time. Yeah. But many of the young men who were with him then converted either mm. on the same day or around the same yeah. time. Although I do want to just pull out a quote because when he was converting, he had his last sermon as oh, an yeah. Anglican minister with them. And that sermon is called The Parting of Friends. It and, tells you a lot right there. Yeah. yeah. And he talks about... Christ and his experiences in Gethsemane and in his crucifixion. So he says, he, Christ, was about to suffer more than man had ever suffered or shall suffer. But there is nothing gloomy, churlish, violent or selfish in his grief. It is tender, affectionate, social. He calls his friends around him, though he was as Job among the ashes. He bids them stay by him and see him suffer. He desires their sympathy. He takes refuge in their love. First he feasts with them and sung a hymn with them and washed their feet. And when his long trial began, he beheld them and kept them in his presence till they in terror shrank from it. Yet on St. Mary and St. John, his virgin mother and his virgin disciple who remained, his eyes still rested. And in St. Peter, who was denying him in the distance, his sudden glance wrought a deep repentance. A wonderful pattern, the type of all trial and of all duty under it while the church endures. Which I think is just so stunning and so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, there's also, like you mentioned him going to help his friend who was dying to go to a warmer climate. And that's something that really strikes me about Newman as well. He, he cares about his friends mm -hmm. and he's there for them in their times of trouble as well. And I think it's John Pusey? Or, uh, Edward B. Pusey. Edward Pusey. He, like I said, he had close relationships with some of the families of his friends and Pusey lost, I think, two of his young daughters in a very short period of time. Okay. And Newman was instrumental in basically helping him get through that time of grief. I don't think Pusey converted. I think he no. was one of those that stayed. There was, there was two that didn't convert. It was Pusey and John Keeble. And yeah. that's another part of that friendship, which is that there was this break at that point that they had to kind of etiquette at the time, force them to separate. And it was such a scandal that he was converting that they had this break in their friendship. But again, Newman really pursued it. And, and after the Apologia, like it opened it up for a lot of those people to come back into his life. And mm. I think that's also so beautiful. A, the forgiveness and B, the willingness to pursue friends 
even when they seem distant from you. Right. And not like from his perspective, I think I read something that he wrote as well. I think it was to his sister talking about the fact that he believed that many of the people that he loved or still loved that stayed in the Anglican communion Mm -hmm. that didn't come with him into what he now considered the fullness of truth and Catholicism. Yeah. He says he still believes that they are united to him in the heart of Christ in the sense of there's still people that he knows are intending to love God with all of their hearts who are very very good people mm-hmm. and it's just it's just beautiful to say like okay I've come away from this but I'm not judging you for staying where you are either because yeah. he he really recognizes the goodness in what he's left and and the goodness of the people that, yeah. that don't Scott Hahn was saying that about his own conversion and, and his own gratitude for his upbringing in the Protestant faith that he said it was a multiplication of the truth it was an addition yeah. not a subtraction that everything he had was good and then there was more yeah I think that's something that we can really learn from as well that whole idea of not that not the us and them mentality that it's obviously like we believe that we have the fullness of the truth but we shouldn't ever scorn or look yep. down on our Christian brothers and sisters and other denominations or in other paths like obviously what they believe is one thing but then their intentions and, and the holiness of their hearts is an entirely different one like there they could there are many i'm sure protestants and people of different denominations that are way closer to god than i am you know and that's something that newman knew and remembered and made a point of saying and i think that's a really good attitude to have Um, yeah i have a quote from john keeble to newman the letter he wrote him after he read the Apologia, which says, My very dear Newman, I will not wait any longer before thanking you with all of my heart for your loving words to me and far too loving of me. If I wait till I write as I should wish, I should never write at all. For indeed, dear friend, the more and the more intently I look at this self-drawn photograph, what a cruel strain it must have been to you, the more I love and admire the artist. Whatever comes of controversial points, I see no end to the good which the whole church, which we may reasonably hope, may derive from such an example of love and candour under the most trying circumstances. It's it's so beautiful that he maintains those friendships and yeah. those... Finding truth where truth is. Um, yeah. And not being afraid to find it outside of the kind of established channels. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. And then I think we've touched on it slightly. I think it's worth pointing out he also wrote to a lot of women. It wasn't just men. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's something to be said because in that era, the kind of Oxford dawn, like there was a bit of... Separation. Yeah, and a bit of boys clubishness, obviously. Yeah. On an academic level, a little bit of... As I mentioned, Mrs. William Bowden, the wife of William Bowden and their daughter Marianne, as well as Maria Giburn, Elizabeth Izzy Frude, and Emily Bowles, and Miss Mary Holmes, a governess, authors Lady Chatterton and Lady Georgiana Fullerton, and Anne Mosley, his sister-in-law, and that he wrote to them in all their different kind of walks in life, that whether it was religious life or married life or childhood and growing up, that it, there was no part of life that wasn't relevant to him. Right. But then I suppose to close on maybe perhaps the most important friendships were the, the men who not only joined the church with him, but joined the priesthood with him. Right. The oratorians. Yeah. He was also a founder, as if he hadn't done enough in his life. But there was John Dalgairns, and perhaps most importantly, Ambrose Sinjin, who was his closest friend who converted with him, who was a priest with him, and is the famously close friend of his life. And I think it's so fitting that when Newman became 
a cardinal. He, he became a cardinal, but I don't think he died very quickly afterwards. Yeah, he did. But actually, it's when he became a cardinal that he took his famous motto. That's it. Corad cor loquitur. Yeah, heart yeah. speaks to heart. heart. That that's the thing that he he chose as his his motto, and that's that's what he had to characterize his whole understanding of faith. And so this other priest, Ambrose Sinjin, was kind of his confidant for for so many years. He wrote, and to you especially, dear Ambrose Sinjin, whom God gave me, and when he took everyone else away, who are the link between my old life and my new, who have now for 21 years been so devoted to me, so patient, so zealous, so tender, who have let me lean so hard upon you, who have watched me so narrowly, who have never thought of yourself if I was in question. That's such a beautiful testament to a friendship. Yeah, it is. The other thing that I think is worth noting about that friendship with Ambrose is that he did outlive him. And he has this really painful quote about that, which I think is so beautiful. After his death, he says, I cannot wonder that after he has been given to me for so long a time as 32 years, he should be taken from me. Sometimes I have thought that, like my patron, St. John, I'm destined to survive all my friends. And I think that's something really worth remembering, both in his conversion and then in his, his long life, that having friends is also partly having pain. And that it's not just about making you feel good and it's not just about having a cosy centre to your life that makes you feel safe. That it will challenge you at times and it will grieve you at times. And C.S. That... Lewis talks about that, doesn't he? Doesn't he have some quote that's about um, risking love is risking loss? Yeah. And we cannot love if we do not open ourselves to the possibility of loss. And that's always stuck with me as well because it is a risk and it is inevitably a pain in the sense that you will always be in some way disappointed by your love, either be it by their death or by their actions or human love, we will always suffer. I mean, that comes with free will. I guess that's where the cross comes from, right? For God so loved the world that he ended up dying for us. And that's because of our own brokenness. And that is the call to friendship. That's how far we're called to go. Yeah. That is the end point of friendship. But yeah. I thought it was just beautiful that no he greater has... love has man than yeah, he gives he, his life. Exactly. Or that other quote, which is so important to Newman's ministry, which is, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Mm-hmm. And that Christ came down not to have us as servants, but to have us as friends. Mm-hmm. And it's so beautiful. But like I think what sums it all up is just that we were saying that Newman is so practical. Like He shows us what the ideal of friendship can be, but also the practicalities and of it. He sits and, down and writes those 35,000 letters. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. I mean, that's what it means to be there for someone, to talk to them, to communicate with them, to love them, to forgive them, to expect them to be the version of themselves that you know they can be, and yeah. to put in the effort, the time with them. To write them birthday letters on their <laughs> albums or whatever we do nowadays. Yeah. Post on Facebook, at it's, least. <laughs> it's so beautiful. And I, I love, there's, there's a bunch of quotes. I think maybe we'll have to come back to it in another podcast. But I love, like, C.S. Lewis has great quotes on friendship. And I think the nature of friendship is something really worth dwelling on in our, in our yeah. day and age. And seeing that as something important to cultivate. Yeah. But as we're also a podcast about art and culture and religion... And obviously I do think that friendship is an important part of that, but we are just going to take a few minutes to look at the things to do with Newman that are more directly related to that, which is his poetry, some of his prayers, and yeah, just at small snippets of his writing. And I see Maria going absolutely mental because she's so excited about this. I am so excited about this. And just another personal thing about Newman and me. So on my wedding dress, I made my own wedding dress and I included kind of symbols. So I, I did embroidery of white symbols on white that meant things to me kind of 
learned from my own past and my my journey and my husband's journey towards our wedding day. And like I had a, a sacred heart on there, immaculate heart, a fountain, a lot of different things that meant different things to me. And I felt so strongly about Newman that I included a snapdragon. And that is because Newman felt so strongly about Oxford, his his alma mater, that he, he says that the snapdragon, a flower that grew outside his college windows when he was in Oxford, will forever be a symbol of himself and of his time in Oxford and of his friendships and the close kind of connections. Oh yeah, so he wrote a really beautiful poem just called To a Snapdragon. I'm not gonna read that out because there's too many other things I want to read out. (laughs) I just love it that he has, he entitles it Snapdragon, a riddle for a flower book. It's just kind of like someone who wrote these great things could also, you know, write a poem to a flower for somebody's flower book. Like it just, it just shows this kind of range of interests. And uh, we're going to talk mainly about his poetry, but he wrote a lot of prose. I want to also say that I read a great article on the Dappled Things website, which is talking about his novel Callista, which I haven't read, but I would be very interested in. In fact, it's very interesting. It's about mainly about a woman in North Africa, but I think she's a Greek woman who is confronted with the possibility of converting. And he looks at conversion through a woman's perspective and has a very deep and nuanced characterization of that so I think that's just kind of interesting his his prose in particular was like very highly regarded and there's two quotes from similar quotes from James Joyce who was a contemporary of his who has quite an interesting take on Newman he says nobody has written English that can be compared with Newman's cloistered silver-veined prose that's beautiful Uh, and he also says he was writing to his patron Harriet Shaw Weaver and he says of Newman nobody has ever written prose that can be compared with that of a a tiresome footling little Anglican parson who afterwards (laughs) became a prince of the only true church which (laughs) wow I don't think it's a quote you'd ever associate from from Joyce Joyce, of all people but also Sean O'Casey follows it up with saying that Newman was as great a man without his red robe as within it And Elgar, the German composer, wrote how proud he was to have been allowed to set Newman's long poem, The Dream of Geronitus, to music. So he was definitely like a a, A man of words as well. A figure within these artistic and literary societies. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that's interesting because he also wrote a lot. This is actually I found by chance because I've recently started praying the Liturgy of the Hours with my husband, at least the night one. So we started praying them together at night, and there's one that really always struck me, one of the hymns during the compline and it doesn't say in the liturgy of the hours like who wrote what at least not in the version we were using but i was going again through his poetry and his prayer the book of prayers verses and devotions that i have and sure enough compline that exact hymn was written by newman so i just want to read it out to you the part that i absolutely love it goes now that the daylight dies away by all thy grace and love thee maker of the world we pray to watch our bed above. Let dreams depart and phantoms fly, the offspring of the night. Keep us like shrines beneath thine eye, pure in our foes despite. I just think that's absolutely beautiful. The idea of being shrines um, during the night, you know, the flickering sanctuary lights while we sleep, being the presence of God in our hearts. Like, it's just so poetic. I've, and it's, I've just realized I always loved that prayer, and, and I didn't know it was new. Like, and how amazing that like our faith is such that a random, well, not a random, but someone in the you know the 19th century can just write this beautiful prayer, and yeah. then all of a sudden it becomes part of the eternal prayer of the church, like the liturgy of the hours. It just shows how the church is open to 
to the working of men with yeah. the Holy Spirit. You know, that, like, we are the people that God uses to craft yeah. the eternal realities, like the beautiful parts of the Mass, or even Scripture. I, I obviously love his really famous ones, like Lead On, Kind of oh, Light, yeah. and particularly his prayer for discernment. Oh, yeah. 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 That I'm a link in a chain, that some work has been given to me that has not been given to another. And I, I trust that you love me more than I love myself. So yeah. That, I just, that, that it was an absolutely beautiful prayer. But the one that I was going to bring up, I mentioned it, that Elgar wrote music to a particular poem that he, he wrote called The Dream of Geronitus, which I had never even heard of and is fascinating. It's a seven-part long-form poem about the hour of someone's death and the speaking of his soul, but also the reply of both the demons and the guardian angels watching over him, which is just fascinating. But there was this wonderful, wonderful quote from it, which is from, this is the guardian angel speaking, where he says, Then was I sent from heaven to set right the balance in his soul of truth and sin, and I have waged a long, relentless fight, resolved that death environs spirit to win which from its fallen state, when all was lost, had been repurchased at so dread a cost. Oh, what a shifting party-coloured scene of hope and fear, of triumph and dismay, of recklessness and penitence has been the history of that dreary lifelong fray. And oh, the grace to nerve him and to lead, how patient, prompt and lavish at his need. Wow. It's just... His stuff is so beautiful. He, so, like I said, he wrote a bunch of the liturgy of the hours. He wrote, like, Vespers for Advent and yeah. Matins and Compline for, like, different liturgical periods. He wrote different kind of stations of the cross. Um, he just wrote a lot. Um, there's the two other poems in particular that I absolutely love. Um, one is called The Queen of Seasons. And it's it's very fitting because one of Maria's other podcasts on this series is on the liturgical on, year. On the liturgical year, so. and I just love the idea of kind of the cyclical, even the natural year, and the changing of the seasons, and how that can tie into our faith. Um, so Newman, he is. I'm not going to read the whole thing out. Um, he goes, but I know of one work of his infinite hand, which special and singular ever must stand, so perfect, so pure. And of gifts such a store that even omnipotence ne'er shall do more. The freshness of May and the sweetness of June and the fire of July at its passionate noon, munificent August, September serene, are together no match for my glorious queen. O Mary, all months and all days are thine own, and thee last their joyousness when they are gone. And we give to thee May, not because it is best, but because it comes first and is pledge of the rest. I just love the idea oh. of, you know, just even how he characterizes the months and, and offers them to Our Lady and makes her into the queen of that cyclical year. I just love that. It just strikes yeah. all the... That's so beautiful. Can I just very quickly nerd out with my very favorite Newman poem, Saving the uh, Best for Last, from, from my perspective, anyway. <laughs> and it's it's not one that you would have kind of, I would have like jumped on or, or noticed right away, but it's the poem that I absolutely love the most of Newman is his valentine to a little girl and he's writing to one of his friend's daughters and i just had like literally i need to read this because you will love it it, it goes little maiden dost thou pine for a faithful valentine art thou scanning timidly every face that meets thine eye art thou fancying there may be fairer face than thou dost see little maiden scholar mine wouldst thou have a valentine go and ask my little child ask the mother undefiled Ask, for she will draw thee near, and will whisper in thine ear, Valentine, the name is good, for it comes of lineage high, and a famous family, and it tells of gentle blood, noble blood, and nobler still. 
for its owner freely poured every drop there was to spill in the quarrel of his lord. Valentine, I know the name, many martyrs bear the same, and they stand in glittering ring round their warrior god and king, who before and for them bled with their robes of ruby red and their swords of cherub flame. Yes, there is a plenty there, knights without reproach or fear, such St. Dennis, such St. George, Martin, Morris, Theodore, Gurdon gained and warfare o'er, by that sea without a surge, and beneath the eternal sky and the beatific sun, in Jerusalem above, Valentine is every one. Choose from out that company whom to serve and whom to love. And I just absolutely love the idea of offering the saints as our loves, in the sense of offering a little girl her pick of the knights of heaven to be her Valentine. I just think that just, it, it sums up the romantic side of Newman, and yeah. not just romantic in a feeling way, but a romantic in a communion of saints in the in the true romance, the romance of our faith, which is, you know, the highest love. And I just love the idea of being able to have that personal relationship with the saints. And now, yeah. you know, I mean, who is, who's in that number now? Newman himself, right? Yeah. Like, can we not pick him for our Valentine? <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I take him any day. <laughs> Spiritual crush. <laughs> but yeah, no, I love it. I think that's so beautiful. And I hadn't heard that poem before. So yeah, thank you I for just I, I think for little kids as well, like the idea of offering the saints as as real people and real friends. Yeah. And kind of saying, you know, our faith has it all. It has the highest love, the greatest adventure. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So I think that is everything that we were planning on saying on Newman. I'm sure we could speak for much, much longer. <laughs> you could uh, pick up your own biography on him because he's definitely worth reading about. Yeah, uh, little Alethea has had a few fusses. And so she just wanted to be on the podcast, right? Yeah, pretty much. But she's been starting good. her early. <laughs> <laughs> but she she's probably looking at her watch saying, come on guys, it's, it's time to go now. I'm sick of this. <laughs> so I think we'll just round up with, other than the canonization of John Henry Newman, what are you enjoying at the moment, Maria? Oh my goodness, that is a loaded question. Well, Personally, I'm enjoying autumn. I should say fall, but then you would mock me because here they call it autumn. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of all the autumnal trappings, you know, the pumpkin yeah. spice cake and the... <laughs> I've actually made a leaf mobile of autumn leaves to hang from our ceiling just so we can have autumn inside when it's gray outside. Yeah, just the simple things. Like I said, we're starting to get used to having a fourth member of our family. So little Alethea makes four in our home. And it's just been enjoying the little things, the rare moments of peace where both my daughters are happy together. <laughs> and, you know, I can do simple things around the house. Like, that's that's what I've been enjoying. I've been starting work on Christmas presents as well. I like to make a lot of homemade ones. Yeah. So They're really beautiful. Yeah. yeah and um, other than that, I've been reading a bunch of Regency era novels that I'm loving by a lady called Georgette Hare. Has Phoebe been lending them to Phoebe you? Phoebe lent me the first one. How did you know? And I have since read four of them. So. Don't ask me when, but I have. I think my answer is also in the similar vein, given that it's coming into autumn and I'm going to New York shortly. Yeah, so For I, your first time to the States. Yeah. I've been in a locked in a waiting room in LAX for uh, a couple of hours while I had a flight transfer. I but... don't think that counts. <laughs> so I rewatched my favourite rom-com of all time, which is You've Got Mail which I think is just the most charming and so uplifting and full-bodied like I feel like the characters and the writing <laughs> you make is... it sound like a wine <laughs> 
yeah, maybe. But it's you know it's about booksellers in New York. So what what more do you need? And not much. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's my recommendation. Is uh, you've got mail. And other than that, I think all we have to say is thank you so much for listening. And make sure you find yourself a good prayer. Maybe that prayer by Newman, the one we were talking about earlier. For so that, yeah, for the month that's in it. Um, yeah, and, and especially on the 13th to pray for him. and Pray really, to him now. Yeah. <laughs> and a party in heaven day. <laughs> yeah, and dwell in this historic moment. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very exciting. And obviously, you know share about the podcast on on social media maybe in the spirit of newman tell your friends about it maybe in the spirit of newman go hang out with your friends (laughs) (laughs) and tell them about this great podcast (laughs) but yeah thanks so much for listening and as always we really appreciate all of the kind words and all of the the time that you guys spend listening to us so we'll be talking to you very shortly and enjoy october yeah and almost saint john henry newman pray Pray for for us us. (laughs) goodbye This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.